The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole. As a leading functional medicine practitioner, I have had the unique position to see so many alchemize their pain and health problems to their purpose. Now I want the same for you. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers, where there is a fresh infusion of grace and lightness into wellness. This is the art of being well. Join me every Thursday for a new episode. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. A three-time best-selling author, professor of economics at Brown, a data scientist, parenting advocate, and mother, This week's guest on Looking Up couldn't be more relevant to our times. It's Professor Emily Oster. My first experience with her was through a podcast recommendation, actually from Alex, my husband. And since then, I have been a huge fan of her work. Seriously, her books have changed my life throughout my pregnancy and parenting journey thus far. I was so excited to sit down with her and talk about what this pandemic has been like for her how making decisions affect our mental health, and to talk to her about the controversial article in The Atlantic. Insightful and so down to earth, Emily shared about the biggest parenting and child development myths she discovered while writing her books, Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and the newest one, Family Firm, who and what sources she goes to for trustworthy information, how we can all make decisions when there are so many options available to us, what her journey from a concerned parent to a trusted COVID-19 expert was like, and how she recommends going about writing a family mission statement. We talked about the pressures of when people hang on your every word like hers, and more so about helping people give them tips and tools to start making more effective decisions that actually resonate with their true purpose. There's so much practical parenting wisdom that she drops throughout our talk. I highly recommend grabbing a pen and some paper and taking some notes. This is one of those episodes you're probably going to want to listen to more than once. Enjoy this episode of Looking Up. So how we start the Looking Up podcast, uh, for those of you listening, you may already know, but we start with a little section that I like to call Looking In. And it's just a series of some short rapid fire style questions for us to get to know you a little more intimately. So without much judgment or thought, the first thing that comes to mind. All right. Has there been a book that you have read that has actually changed the way you live your life? And if so, please share the title and a little bit about why. Taking Charge of Your Fertility, which I read must be more than a decade ago now because my oldest kid is 10, but it was both sort of helpful for me in thinking about my own fertility. It also told me all the things that I had not been told as a kid about how your body works. But more than that, I think it was a a sort of starting point for how I started to think about my own writing and what I was going to be doing in the in the books. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. Hard 
Um, but I'm actually very smiley. Mm. <laughs> you are really smiley. <laughs> and you I am smiley. <laughs> I mean, you know, somebody said that to me the other day. I mean, they were like, you're, you're surprisingly smiley. <laughs> surprisingly smiley. Three words to describe yourself as a teenager during the high school years. Awkward, unhappy, driven. Mm. Three things that have brought you joy today so far. Breakfast with my kids, a very nice walk with a colleague, and a train ride. Because I like to ride the train. <laughs> I like that. Okay, well, I know this last year plus plus, I'm just saying plus plus, has been hard for pretty much everyone for different reasons. But I wanted to just ask you, out of all those reasons, what is one thing that has been a really big struggle over this past interesting time? And what's something that you have kind of gained or, or something that has been a sense of growth or even a silver lining, if you will? Yeah. So I, I think on the, the sort of biggest struggle, and this is part, I mean, it has been a very difficult year. There's a lot of things in that, in that category. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's always the, the biggest struggle for me has been, I have probably been working like quite a lot more than I should, should have been um, or, you know, and so it, it means that I'm sort of a little overwhelmed and also just putting in more work hours. Like there's kind of no rest time. Um, and I think I didn't realize quite until we took a short vacation this summer, quite how much I needed, like just a little bit of rest. But in terms of, of silver linings, I have spent a lot more time with my kids than I did before. We've had a lot more concentrated family time. And I particularly value that with my older kid who's now in fifth grade, that having that concentrated time as she is sort of turning into more of her own person has been an opportunity to really get almost to like get to know her in a little bit of a different way. And I think that's really special. Absolutely. I'm so excited to have you here for so many different reasons. But one of the main reasons is that So I have a four-year-old and I have a 10-month-old. But when I was pregnant with my four-year-old, maybe it was, it might have been actually like the tail end in the third trimester, I think, somewhere around then, you know, like there's just so much information out there of overload for everyone, for everything. Like I think I've talked about it a lot in, in some of these podcast episodes, but a lot in when I'm speaking about this idea of paralysis of choice and we're just overwhelmed right now with a barrage of information that is maybe valid and maybe not, but that's besides the point. It's just a lot and there's differing opinions all the time. And I will say, especially in becoming a mother or a parent, and it can be an extremely overwhelming time. And it was for me. And my husband came home one day and he was like, I think you'll really love this episode of a podcast I was listening to. There's this woman on it that's interviewed that's a data scientist. And she's talking about all these different topics that we talk about at home that are stressing you out and me out about being pregnant. And I was like, okay. I mean, my husband was like a very early on podcast listener and I just wasn't. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. And I listened to it. And there are very few things that I would say have actually changed the course in which I was actually living my life. And I can just say that like, as a physical response, when I was listening, my shoulders went from like up here to like, like I could breathe. And I think like, you know, not, not always 
do I make decisions? I'm a very science-driven person and it's sort of, it's the core of everything that I talk about and I do. But sometimes as a mom, you're not going to make the science-based decisions. You're going to go with your gut. You're going to go with your instinct. But oftentimes your gut and your instinct can be so like off track by what you actually think that you should do because you've just listened to 15 different quote unquote experts tell you 15 different ideas. And some of them are in memes. Some of them are in, you know, whatever they are in, but they come most of the time from social media these days. And there's like, they confuse you. And so it was so nice to get this sort of Some of the things I didn't want to hear and some of the things I really did want to hear and they made me feel better. But it was like a lot of myth busting and a lot of things that I think we pressure ourselves for while we're pregnant, whether it's what we're eating, what we're not eating, what supplements we're taking. Are we going to breastfeed? Can we breastfeed? What is in my shampoo? Like there were just so many, can I eat salami? Can I just eat some salami? And so I think there were just so many things that were already circling in my mind and the stress of like, I am carrying this little person. And then you follow, you had all this information that was very, very data-driven, which really spoke to me and spoke to a lot of my friends. Because all of a sudden, I think a lot of my friends were listening to the same episode. I started to recommend your book. And I think it was expecting better at that point. And then it was also crib sheet after that, which I'm so glad that follow up because for people that were, I was pregnant, then I had my child and I was like, I need more Emily. And then you had crib sheet. And then now there was, yeah, there was family firm now. And so what was really great to me is the two people that I usually go for advice were also reading your book. And so I knew we had that like sort of in common. And so many people since then, now that it's sort of in my world and I talk about you and your work are like, I live by what she writes. And I think that that is such a compliment that can also be a whole host of pressure, um, I'm sure. And I just want to say thank you because there are certain, I ate salami after I read that because I lived in California and there was very little chance that I was going to get is it Listeria? Um, And I had two different, you know, people have heard I've had two different birth stories. One, you know, I I carried my first child and I had hyperemesis gravidarum. I got preeclampsia. I found out I had all these issues that were actually really scary and fatal. And then I was told I couldn't carry again. And so then we went through a surrogacy journey and I breastfed my first one for basically a year. I obviously wasn't able to breastfeed my second one. And I felt so much better about all the things by just reading your work. So thank you to that and for putting uh, some sort of just order to the madness out there of being a parent. Um, I really wanted to talk to you about that and where that came from. I know you are a mother and also a data scientist, but where did that, where did that like, obviously it makes sense in your life of the culmination of that, but there's such a need. And how did that sort of, was there an aha moment? Like, I think other people need to know this. Yeah. So first of all, thank you. That really, really made me feel very happy. Um, So I think that, you know, this really comes from the same place, which is like, you know, I got pregnant and I was asking a lot of these questions. And for me, the most annoying, complicated set of things was when the answers differed. And, and, and I was relying a lot on you know, official sources, mm-hmm. right? So I was, I, I, but those still had these differing answers. So it was still the case that what my obstetrician was saying wasn't the same thing as what the books were saying wasn't the same thing. And all the books said the different things. And 
Um, so even before you got to, you know, social media or your, your parents or your friends or whoever it was, we were already in a kind of confusing mm-hmm. world. And so I started doing all of this research on, on my own to try to like figure this stuff out for, for myself. And then there was a point at which I realized, you know, other people might, might like to know this too. And I think now there is so much of an embrace of like data, like data driven, like data, you know, using data, data, so much interest in, in data, but actually, you know, that, that there wasn't as much, I think at the, at the time. And so I remember when I sort of initially was writing the book and sold the book and was, and was sort of talking to people about, I think there was a little bit of a, like a, it was, it was somewhat challenging to find a person who was willing, like an editor who was Mm -hmm. willing to, to kind of embrace the the vision that I had, which was like, Hey, we can write a book that people will want to read that involves graphs. Mm -hmm. Like we can do, we can go one step beyond just trust me. I'm an expert. We can tell people why we can explain to them about numbers. Some people will want this. Maybe not everybody will want this, but some people will want to be respected and heard and have this presented in this way. And I feel, you know, many ways very lucky that when I was working on Expecting Better, that I was working with somebody who had bought into that idea because I think it's it's been really important in how I think about shaping the message that I send. I mean, absolutely. And I think like even just on the whole, like the general industry of wellness, I think we're at the point where I believe that people are sort of ready and I respect them enough to know that like they they want to know the hard science and they want to know it in a in a you know digestible way but like people are are ready for it they're not needing everything to be diluted and sort of very oversimplified and kind of dumbed down or just said like just just believe me people are like listen I want to know why and they're smart enough to, and, and they're, they're intelligent enough to deserve that information. And I think that you're so right. At that time, I think it was sort of before this like balloon effect of people, sort of the trend of data. So with expecting better or crib sheet, because it sounds like a lot of this information actually, which I love and appreciate, came from your own sort of need for learning more and, and deciphering between all the, the sort of noise out there and differing advice on stuff. What are like three things that you learned in your research that you wrote about either in Expecting Better or Crib Sheet that kind of wowed you or surprised you or relieved you or kind of like busted a myth that you may have had or heard? So, you know, I think in Expecting Better, the piece that was most surprising was the stuff about bed rest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I talk in, in the bed rest actually pretty commonly prescribed for a lot of different, um, you know, for a lot of different complications. You know, it turns out when you kind of dig in there, actually, there's basically no complication for which bed rest is known to be a, a like successful intervention. Wow. And there are a lot of bad things about it. So it like, it, you know, there's sort of muscle atrophy, there's, there's other reasons, you know, like, you don't want to be laying in bed for all these months, like so reasons like that that it's bad. And I think the more striking thing was that this is not like, it wasn't like this is something I like secretly dug up. Like actually this was widely, it was like widely known this was not a good idea. And yet it was still being prescribed all the time. When you sort of like push into like, why is that? And the answer was sort of when we are not 
when there is something that where something bad might happen and we don't really know how to prevent it, which is true of like a lot of preterm birth, we just don't really know why it happens and, and how to how to prevent it. There is a desire to like be able to say that we could do something, right? Mm-hmm. Like people want to be told, like, here's a thing we can do. And so I think this was an example where the hard thing almost the right and hard thing to say is some version of like, hey, bed rest isn't going to work. It's really nothing we can do, but you know, there's a chance that your baby will be, will be premature given, you know, some complication that we've seen. And instead we're sort of going to like, well, here's something we can, you know, Mm -hmm. we can try, even though we sort of know that it's not good. And I think that, that was a theme that came up a lot in my, in my thinking, but this was just like such a stark, um, Mm. such a stark example. I think I'm drawn to interesting. I'm going to give you an example from crib sheet and I reflecting on them. I think I'm drawn to places where I'm surprised at how we react to evidence. So the example from crib sheet that I think is most interesting is about peanuts. So if you look at as this is in, in I write about this in chapter on early allergen in, on like sort of how we think about allergens and peanut allergies have become you know, substantially more common over, over time. And when you think about, you know, how can we, how can we prevent those? It turns out there's, there's evidence you know, from the last couple of years suggesting that it is hugely beneficial in terms of preventing peanut allergies and actually other mm-hmm. childhood allergies to introduce the allergens early. Mm-hmm. So to give kids access to peanuts or eggs or tree nuts or whatever it is when they're very small, uh, like at four months, and so not to wait for a year. Whereas the advice that I had been given, even with my first kid, was that you should wait on all of these things for a year. It turns out that that actually makes kids more likely to be alert. Hmm. And so, so the sort of guidance has changed, but it's an example of a time when we probably overstated how sure we were about some, you know, piece of evidence based on sort of flawed data. And then we, and then kind of experts had to go back and, and say, okay, well, actually, you know, it's, it turns out it's not just that it's not that it's like the opposite mm-hmm. of that. And that is both surprising and also, you know, illustrative of some issues I think we see with messaging. Because I know that sometimes research can show one thing and then a few years down the line, maybe a better research experiment is conducted and it can actually disprove that one thing. And then we all have to sort of, we have to adapt and come to, and people have to actually be open about it and say like, oh wait, this changed. It's kind of like, almost like a recall on something. But does that- (laughs) Almost like that, yeah. Almost like that. But like, does that mean that there was research that actually happened that showed waiting until a year was good? Or is that just like made up on like, huh, other things we wait for a year. So why don't we also just wait for a year for this? Yeah. So I think it, it turns out if you sort of think about why did we have the wait for a year policy initially, it was pretty much just made up. I mean, it was sort of like the idea was like, you know, if you don't want the baby to have a bad reaction, mm-hmm. maybe if you, if you wait, but it wasn't, it wasn't the case that we had a study that showed one thing and then we had a better right. study that showed something else. It was like, we didn't really have any evidence. We had a kind of guess. And then when we got evidence, it was the opposite. How interesting that, so my oldest is four. And by that time I was told actually to give him peanuts early on, but to yes. wait on egg whites for a year. Yeah, that turns out that's not true, actually. <laughs> Eggs work the same as peanuts. Yes, exactly the Great. point. Just point. egg white. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Um, so okay. he was eating peanuts and egg yolks like together, but I like waited for oh. the egg whites. <laughs> that's also really gross, but okay, let's yes. like move on. <laughs> yeah, it is really gross. So uh, this actually also, well, this reminds me a little bit on when something is sort of, it's similar to what you said about bed rest, when like you kind of just want to say something as 
an expert or someone giving something something to do, take an action, you don't really know. And instead of saying, I don't know, uh, we kind of just make up stuff or we yeah. like use something from some other piece that doesn't actually apply to this specific thing. And it kind of reminds me how in my world, when people always say 21 days to build a new habit or, you know, 21 days to, to break down a habit. And actually like that's not based on any research <laughs> at all. There is actually, again, a big surprise, but controversial research on how many days it actually takes to build a new habit. But what research shows is that it's probably somewhere closer to 66 on average. I think it just, a lot of things sound good. And we all want to have this bite-sized sort of like, it takes this to do this. And so we just want to follow something because we, uh, that it's human nature to want to be able to take action and do something. But wouldn't it be nice if it was based on something? People like rules. Yes, we do. People like the idea of rules and they like to be sort of told what to, it's not that they like to be told what to do, but they like the idea that sort of you could control something. Like if you just do it like this, it will, you know, if you just wait 21 days, then like it'll just be set. Right. And you'll just be in the habit. And then you want to think about it because of the 21 days. Right. And I understand that it's our human nature to want to be able to control something, to measure something, to put something in action. And I I very much am like that. But I also really want to know that what I'm doing is based on something valid. And I think like the main reason why I'm so excited to have you here is I think that there is such a huge, a strong correlation between decision making and mental health and especially right now. And so I think the work that you do is actually a real tool that helps us to make better decisions in a world that we live in right now where making decisions is one of the hardest things that we have to do. And I'm talking about like everyday decisions and we don't have like a process and we just are bombarded and we're confused for good reason. And so I'm very excited to have you here to just like work through that and and this idea of of making better decisions that feel sound and talk to me through what it's like you know when so many people hang upon your words like i literally have a lot of friends that are like i literally live by by emily's words talk to me through what that's like and then when something like the atlantic article happens and you know, data is constantly changing. And oftentimes, like, even how we perceive data can change and we can change our minds when we have better information. But oftentimes, I think when you're the deliverer of some data or something, then people couple that with like people that just live by your words, it can be a lot of pressure. And some part of like, I don't know, an expectation or pressure put upon you that maybe like, is not exactly fair. But um, also, I think that what I really like is that I've seen, at least in in the time that I followed along on your journey, that like you're actually very transparent and you handle it all really well. And you, you sort of take ownership of when you actually have a changed thought and why, and you share it. And you're not sort of just like, you know, we've seen this happen before when something I don't know, we thought was true because someone told us and maybe it's not, or maybe something a little bit is different about it. Either the person says nothing, goes away, or, you know, avoids. And then like, I just think like you've dealt with it really well. And it kind of is something that I think people don't understand, but it's par for the course. Like that might happen and it will happen. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that experience and what happened and did it impact you a lot? Sure. So this last kind of 
18 months has been very interesting. It's been terrible in many ways, but on these particular dimensions has been sort of very interesting for me because I think that, you know, coming into this, you know, coming into sort of pre-COVID, there were a lot of people, you know, who read my books and who liked them and, and, you know, thought that like thought of them as interesting, but it's also pretty clear to me that, that sort of when I started this newsletter and then was writing a lot about COVID that I think people listen in a way that maybe is different from how they listen to this stuff about, um, about pregnancy. And Mm -hmm. I also think that because the pandemic was so isolating and there were these sort of stretches, I mean, some people would be like, basically like, I think of you as my friend because we were not seeing anybody. And like, you were in my inbox twice a week, like talking to me about stuff and helping me think things through. And like, I think that that's part of like the, the sort of what I love about the newsletter format, which I only started like, you know, just looking back, like basically my second post of the newsletter is about COVID. And I had started it with like, okay, I'll do this newsletter and I'm like, yeah, that parenting. And then all of a sudden it's like, that's it. It's about COVID. And then it was a sort of totally different thing. It also sort of only slowly dawned on me, like my platform is really different um, and sort of real, like really different than it was it's bigger and had, you know, contained more responsibility than it, than it did, um, you know, two, two years ago. And that meant when I write things, you know, both in the newsletter, but even more than that, sort of in the, in the public space that they, that more people read them, more people listen to them. And that there's a, a responsibility to be, not to be right. Because I think that, you know, you can't say somebody has a responsibility to be right. And in, as you say, sort of things change. And so, but I think there's a responsibility to be careful mm-hmm. and a responsibility to be transparent and honest. And again, I think part of what I've liked about the newsletter is the opportunity to sort of speak again to some, you know, in the cases in which I think like, hey, you know, that's not like I made a mistake or, you know, things have changed. This has been a continual way to kind of reach the same people and, and talk to them. The Atlantic article about the grandparents was a very important learning experience for me. And it was really hard. You had said that basically unvaccinated children were sort of at the same level of risk as our vaccinated grandparents. So what I said in the article was unvaccinated in terms of serious illness, mm-hmm. uh, unvaccinated kids are the same, are like sort of, you can think about them as a vaccinated grandparent in terms of their level of risk. Now, ex post, it turns out that that's wrong in the sense that actually your unvaccinated kids are at way, way, way lower risk than mm-hmm. your vaccinated grandparents. In fact, way lower risk than vaccinated adults in general. So it turns out like the age, the sort of particularly post-Delta, like actually that like the, the sort of complaints people had were, were about, you know, actually unvaccinated kids are at higher risk, but it turns out like in practice, they're at, they're at lower risk. But the thing that that analogy missed, the place that I sort of felt that I really fell down on that was that people read that sort of in a casual way mm-hmm. as unvaccinated kids can't get COVID, which is of course not true. And in fact, the COVID, COVID rates in terms of like, could your kid get COVID? Could they be infected with it? You know, those are lower than, than you know, vac- lower than older people, but they're, but they're higher than, you know, the vaccines are protective against, against infection. So there was a sort of piece of what I wrote that was just too fast. Mm-hmm. It was just too simplified. And it led people, you know, it, I just had not thought through some of what would happen, some of how people would, would read that. Right. And I particularly hadn't thought it through in the context of the, of the audience that I had at that point of the size of the audience. Like, I think if I had written, you know, written things before that people don't like, and it's one thing to write it when you are, 
you know, speaking to a smaller audience and, mm-hmm. and it's a different thing when it's a bigger audience. And, I, and when we're in a pandemic, which just is more heightened in general and it's new for everyone, including you. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it, you know, I, so I think I was, I was glad I got the opportunity to sort of revisit that and say like, you know, I was glad I had the newsletter as an outlet to be able to mm-hmm. say, look, I messed up. Like I shouldn't have written it like this. And I should, you know, I should have, should have written this in this way. And, you know, I'm sorry. And I think that was, I've thought about that a lot in the last, I don't know, whatever, four months, six months, however much time it's been in pandemic time. And I think that so much like comes up with that. That could be like a whole nother episode, but just this idea also that we like as humans also have this ability to just, we're always looking to like hang upon someone's words too. And then once we do, there's sort of like a very black and white thing about it where it's like, you are not allowed to make a mistake. And I think that it kind of like realms on sort of the things I talk about sometimes in like toxic positivity, where it's like this very black and white, like we are not allowed to have anger or fear or worry. We need to just slap like a very positive, you know, slogan or bumper sticker upon our lives and just move forward you know, the good vibes only stuff and all that. But it's also like how we treat people and and experts. And I think it comes back to that, like if we can't accept that someone can change or grow or make a mistake or, you know, clarify something, then like we also aren't able to accept that we can do those things. And I think that's kind of scary because we have to be able to recognize change and growth in others, if we're going to recognize them in ourselves. And if we can't recognize that in themselves, I'm not really sure what we're doing. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the sort of on the bigger picture of like, you know, that kind of question of like, how does it feel people listen to you? I find it, sometimes I just want to be like, well, don't like totally, like the whole point is like, I'm not like, you're supposed to think about this for yourself. And like, <laughs> I like don't, you know, because sometimes people will be like, well, it'd be really great is at the start of your newsletter, you were just like, this is what I do. Yeah. And so then I wouldn't have to read it. I'm just like, no, that's like literally the opposite of what I'm trying to achieve here. You know, I don't actually want to tell you what what I'm doing because I don't think it's the right thing for you. So, yeah. Well, speaking of that, I think what you do really well. And again, what I would like, what I take from all of it is like this idea of I want to make better decisions and I want to have a process of better decision making where I feel more informed, more empowered. I go through my decision making in a little bit of a quicker more efficient manner rather than like being paralyzed or stuck. And I think many people feel that way. And so I more look to, I think a healthier way to look to sort of what you're doing is more about that. Like rather than like, what would Emily do? Like if we all wore bracelets that were like W-E-D, what would Emily do? It's more just like, what is Emily showing us in the process of decision-making that can help us make better decisions and think for ourselves and have better information. And so with that, what are some tips or tools that you sort of use and you can offer for us to sort of shut out some of the noise or what are the things that you really look for when you're sifting through data or research studies or opinions that let you know, like, this is either a good source or this isn't a good source? Uh, You know, just what are some of the things that you look for you know, in your decision-making when you, when you are presented with, with stuff? For me, particularly when I, I'm thinking about the kind of parenting type decisions that I'm making now, you know, they're, they're pretty 
vague. You know, they're kind of very specific to my kids almost, which is a lot of what I talk about in, in family firms. So I think often the first step is just being like, okay, what is the, like, there's usually a piece of data that I need or a piece of information or something I need to, I need to look to, but trying to be really specific about what that is, is often a sort of a good first step. And it happens in the COVID stuff too. Like, okay, I'm trying to, you know, if, if someone is sort of like trying to think about, I don't know, should I vaccinate my kids or like whatever, it's sort of looking to like, well, what are you, like, what exactly is the piece of evidence that you're waiting for? Like, what are you, mm-hmm. what are you concerned about? Or what are you hoping for? What, like, how can you evaluate that, that those sort of small number of things? rather than asking the question in a sort of very, very like broad way that is not helpful for sort of moving mm-hmm. to a, to an answer. And then, you know, when I'm looking for evidence for, for data, when I look at studies, there's this kind of general sense of like randomized trials being sort of better than observational studies. One of the things I've spent a lot of time on last you know year is thinking about like, is this study plausible? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was, I wrote something about about a study that said like baby IQ, you know, is affected by the pandemic. And when I, when I read that study, like the reduction in IQ was like, like so large as to be completely impossible. And so sort of on its face, it was just like, it was like the the pandemic have lost 82 IQ points. And it was like, I'm sorry, but like, like, it's just, no, like, that's not like, I don't, I don't need to like, just no, I don't know what's wrong. Let me try. I can try to figure it out. But like, basically that's not, that's not right. The other thing is I do look to a lot of experts for, for stuff, but I try to sort of figure out who's a good, who's a good expert based on, and I try to not just have one. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I, you know, look to people on COVID stuff, I try to kind of curate a slightly broader set of experts, some of whom are maybe, you know, to the more cautious side of me, some of whom are to the less cautious side of me and sort of like triangulate a little bit where I agree and, and disagree with them. When it comes to COVID and our kids, who are some of the experts that you sort of look to? So on sort of one side of this point, I spend, I, like I read a lot of like Monica Gandhi and Alistair Monroe, who are like, who's like in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, the UK is a very good source for information on, on this stuff because they have much better data mm-hmm. than other people and than other countries. I also think there's a guy named Bob Wachter, who's at UC, who's like the head of medicine at UCSF, mm-hmm. who actually is very thoughtful about a lot of things. He is probably much more, you know, he's like much more conservative than I am. Mm-hmm. But I also think that's a very, like, that's like, like he's all, he's very smart. And so he sort of takes more, like he's more of a COVID precautioner than I am probably, but mm-hmm. triangulating between these sort of different people is very helpful for the way that I'm thinking about stuff. Yeah, I feel like kind of to what you were saying before, it's so important to also really, when you're seeking out information or advice, whether it's from a real human in your life or whether it's from someone you follow on social media or an expert or research that you read, whatever, articles, it's like so important to ask yourself what the specific question is and how that would sort of impact your specific family unit or your specific sort of set of values because I definitely was starting to realize, you know, I I had, we didn't even have a pod last year. I was so concerned for myself. I I was high risk, or at least they thought I was at some point in time. I remember when my hematologist called me and was like, you're high risk, by the way, I never would have thought I was. And this was sort of in the beginning of when we were in that first initial like shutdown and she was like, just so you know, like there's still some preschools open and a lot of your friends will be sending their kids, but like you should not. And you should also make sure that your husband 
has a letter in case this was a time when, you know, they were still like, oh, we'll probably go back to work in like a week. He should not go back to work because you're like that high risk. It was pre-vaccine and everything. And so I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Everything got really closed. I was obviously super protective over myself. And we just like were very insular. And my, you know, my level of risk taking was very low. And my value for it was like, I, I don't, it's just like, I, I don't want to take any risk. And so mm-hmm. the things that I was doing or not doing might've been whether or not data or not data, like very different than maybe someone else that was going to willing to take like a little more of a mild risk and weigh out the pros and cons. And same with right now, this year, we actually sent my older son to preschool And we did choose a school that like was very much in line with the way that we are sort of thinking and and is definitely on the more conservative side. But having said that, I was, you know, Delta just started right when we sent him to school. So I was like, oh my gosh, we've kept him in this whole time, not even a pod. Now I'm sending him feeling like pretty confident, but then like a week later, uh, all this Delta stuff's coming out. And I really had to be like, well, have my risks uh, like my level or my my willingness to take a level of risk changed since like a year ago. And, you know, has it changed since being vaccinated? Has it changed since learning more about the virus and, and X, Y, and Z? And has it changed in terms of now knowing, you know, I sent him for a week of summer camp and how amazing it was socially for him. So all those things, having said, I knew my anxiety levels would be extremely high. I knew that going in. I still know that we're only a few weeks in, but like we made the decision to send him to school. And I think that it was a different place I was in. And I had to really know that when I was seeking out the information than I was like 10 months ago. And so I think that's really important. And I remember someone asked me because I was asking my friends, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they were like, well, here's what we're doing. But listen, like you have to really like figure out what level of risk you're willing to take. Because if you send your child to school, you are assuming more risk than if you're not. But that level of risk, where is that on that continuum for you? And so it really is a very specific, like we can't just go on you guys, we can't just go on being like, what would Emily do? It's not really fair. <laughs> can't do that. No, no, you can't, can't do that. that. And I think you're totally, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's just, you're going to have to, like, you're going to have to live with it. It's not exactly how I would put it. But yeah. like, ultimately, you know, this is the sort of anxiety and, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to deal with that? That's something that, that you live. And I think that's, that's really the, the reason why you, you must sort of make this choice in a way that is sort of thoughtful for your family and for, you know, for how you feel about these things and for, for both risks that are, mm-hmm. that are medical risks and also for how you process risks. And I think both of those things are really important. So when you make decisions for your family or your kids or with your kids, with your family, what is the majority, like, is the majority of your decision-making really based on data and like you do that research or are there times where you're like, I see what the data is it's saying this, but my gut is telling me something different and I'm going to just choose something different. Or is it usually pretty in line? No, I mean, I think that when there is data that's sort of very clear in in one direction or the other about like something like sleep, Mm -hmm. like where I think that like the data is very, very suggest sleep is really important. You know, that's something we really prioritize. As you get into older kids, actually not that many things like that. So there's not that many things where I'd be like, well, the data for sure says this. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's like an opportunity to go against it. I think in the end, a lot of our of our decisions and a lot of our decision making 
in these kind of data poor spaces or, or data uncertain spaces is really about kind of our values and, and thinking about, you know, what do we, what do we want the data to look like? What do our kids, you know, what kind of works, works for the kids mm-hmm. um, within the very strict confines of bedtime, of like having a very strict bedtime. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, like it really, it, reading like crib sheet too is just so, I, I just get a sense of like feeling empowered just because there's like, you know, on things like uh, sleep training and feeding and all these things that like actually have a very, they seem like they could be simple, you know, before I had kids, if I just thought like, huh, what does the data say or whatever about sleep training? But like actually everything, every decision that that I have made as a parent, whether it seems simple or not, or like it could be black or white has been so emotional, like emotionally charged. And like, am I like, you know, you think these thoughts that like may seem completely preposterous to someone, but when you're in it, like, am I going to like ruin the attachment style of my child if he cries for like two minutes and I don't go to him? Like, is he going to believe that I'm there for the rest of his life? You know, like you just start thinking these things that you would have never thought that you would think. And even if like you read something about it that seems not likely at all, I think parenthood in the end of the day is very emotional and that makes sense. And so I think having something to fall back on when you can't trust yourself sometimes too, where there's a very clear indication of where data is going is so helpful. I want to give people tools that they can use in their own life, not necessarily to come to me to just ask me what they might do or should do. It's like, I hope that I'm giving you tools and you're giving me decision-making tools that I can read your work and feel really empowered by. But even if I didn't read your work for a second, it's already like you've helped me make better decisions. And now I can carry that with me as a parent for the rest of the time. And so I think that is so important. Tell us a little bit about your new book. And I actually have a very specific question from the book that one of my best friends actually like called me yesterday and was like, can you ask her this? So maybe <laughs> just tell us a little bit about the book and then I'm going to ask sure. you, I'm going to ask you Tiffany's question after. <laughs> Okay. Um, so, so the new book is about kind of parenting in the, in the logistics heavy age of five to 12. And it has like the first two books, a bunch of data this time around things like screens and reading and school choice and sleep and nutrition for, for older kids, but also has at the start uh, a lot of discussion about how to structure decision-making uh, and how to create some kind of big picture ideas for your family and think about what you want your day-to-day to look like uh, mm-hmm. and how you can you know, make sure that you prioritize the, the pieces that you that you kind of want to prioritize. And so it sort of goes back and forth between this kind of decision-making sort mm-hmm. of like life structure piece and the kind of on-the-ground data piece. Tiffany had a question very specifically about creating a family mission statement. She's having a little bit of a tough time with really honing in on like guidance in creating the family mission statement and how how to really know if it's actually a good or effective one and are there ways to test it and who do you go to for feedback? I will say sort of broadly, I think of this sort of mission statement as a piece of a number of different things. So if you said like, I'm having trouble saying a sentence, okay. I get that. That's something our family also, I would say, is not our best piece of this. There's some other parts of that I would say call the broader set of sort of mission statement, which is like, what are your 
sort of top values? Mm-hmm. What are the things, and, and more than that practically, like what are the things you want to be doing on, on any given day? And so I think for some people, the thing that's really going to resonate is the idea of like, yes, I feel like I could state our values in a, like a sentence. And then if we got on the same page about that, then when we came to make downstream decisions, we would be able to come back to that and say like, hey, you know, we said our priority is to like raise independent adults. Like that's the thing. And for our family, it's probably our mission statement, mm-hmm. something close to that. Like sort of we're trying to like get the kids to, to and then to be adults mm-hmm. in some ways. And so then, you know, that, that kind of, when you come to a decision, like how much independence should we give them? You can sort of come back mm-hmm. to that mission statement. But I think for other people, the thing it's much more useful is to say, well, look, we, we kind of said the th- three things we want to have every day. We want to have, you know, one family meal and, um, you know, some time to read to the kids and one outside of school activity or whatever it is. And that that will, that that sort of practicalness is a thing you will come back to. So I think really the guidance I would give is you want to prioritize the pieces of this that, that are kind of kind of work for you such that when you come to a decision, you can come back to them mm-hmm. and they will help you decide. They will sort of help ground those, mm-hmm. those decisions. Um, but I wouldn't get like, I wouldn't get overly caught up in the idea that like the mission statement itself is like the, like you can't move on until you've made that. Right. Really come back. Yeah. And that is something that individually, like one of the big, the first things that we do when working together and increasing optimism in practice is actually coming up with that or, or knowing what you truly value. Because again, making decisions in this day and age is really difficult. Like even just buying a box of cereal, not only is it hard to make a decision, but when there's so many options that you're constantly weighing out and you don't have a good decision-making process when one of the options that you chose just isn't living up to your expectations even a little bit, our main reaction is to chuck it and be like, huh, there's another one. And we do that with relationships. We do that with jobs. We do that with X, Y, and Z where, you know, sometimes if we just pin something down to three to five options and that's all we have, we'll make a better decision and we'll actually probably commit to it or stick to it better and persevere through some of the hardships that naturally happen with whatever you choose. And so, of course, why wouldn't we do this or weigh our decisions against our our family decisions as a unit against something that our family has as a sort of mission statement and values? And it just brings us back to mental health and decision-making and being able to make better decisions, which is a very integral part of living life right now. (laughs) It's true. Well, I... I'm so happy to have had you here and I definitely want to continue our conversation and I know our time's up, but I guess I have one sort of quick question that maybe is pertinent to other people, maybe not. Um, I know you talked a little bit about screen time and just if you can give us the quick, like what does data say right now that might be surprising? And I also have a question really quick, if you can, I know it's probably not a very quick answer, but this idea of, I feel like I'm in the stage right now where a lot of my friends also are trying and myself to think about and putting pressure on ourselves to continuously keep our kids busy. But what about like just natural alone time or boredom or idle time? So, I mean, in some ways I think these questions have sort of similar Mm -hmm. answers, but, you know, I think with screen time, there is uh, a tendency for people to think of it as kind of a, like a, a bad, like in the sense of like, sort of it's, it's bad and you want to do as little of it as possible and doing more of it is worse, but anyway, we have to do it. And so we're kind of like, well, we're doing it, but we're feeling bad about it. And so like, I think that's kind of the space mm-hmm. that we've, we've gotten into. And so I think rather it may be helpful to sort of step back and just try to think of screen time as a neutral, 
as like the activity of being on the screen. It's not itself good or bad. It's just, it's a thing that you do like other things you do. But when you are on the screen, you are not doing other things. And that is probably to the extent that there is a, a kind of consideration you should have in this, in this decision-making, it should be around what else would my kid be doing with this, with this time. And, you know, if your kid is watching six hours of TV a day, then there's not as much time. There's really not much time at all uh, to, you know, hang out with their friends or see their family or do their homework or do whatever else there is. But if they're watching an hour of TV every day, when otherwise they would be, you know, whining at you or (laughs) wrecking your house or you'd be yelling at them or whatever it is, like, it's not that the TV is bad. You just need to sort of fit it in inside the, the, the sort of schedule and life that you're that you're crafting. And I think if, if it's framed like that, it takes some of this guilt out. Mm-hmm. It lets people do some of this without it being something where I kind of feel like every time I resort to it, I feel like, oh, I'm resorting to this television and like, because I'm a crappy, I'm a crappy mm-hmm. parent. And I think that there's a, um, in some ways, a sort of similar logic to your, to your mm-hmm. kind of keeping them busy piece, which is, you know, you asked it as what should I be doing to like, for this to be good for my kid? Yes. But like, probably these are both fine for, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. the answer is like, it's not really your responsibility to keep them busy all the time. You want to keep them busy all the time. That's probably okay. Um, You know, it's also like, these are like fine things. The question is just like, where is this going to fit in the family? Like you shouldn't feel like you have to keep them busy all the time, but also if you want to keep them busy all the time, that's also Mm -hmm. like, like, okay. And I, and I, I think we're putting a lot of pressure around the idea of, of every choice I make must be in some ways around like, optimizing my kid as opposed right. to just like what's going to work in this family schedule. Yes. I will say we make our kids, my kids are 10. My, my 10 year old still has quiet time in the afternoon for an hour. They get to listen to audiobooks. Ugh. And that's it. We need to establish a quiet time. Actually, that, audiobooks that, really work for, for when my they older son. Sleep, napping. We just said now it's yeah. quiet time. Yeah. And we just like never got rid of it. That's great. That's actually wonderful. Well, thank you so much. The last thing that we do here, if we were together, I'd have you pick a card from my my things are looking up optimism deck of cards. So it's a little bit of homework for you. I just picked one out randomly while you were talking. This one's yours. Um, nice. You don't have to answer this right now, but just take it with you into your day. Cultivate a sense of humor, the ability to laugh at yourself or something you found funny today. If you aren't already laughing out loud, try it. So that is your little work for today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. This is great. Such and fun. really quick, all three books are out now. Yes. All available. All are bestsellers, by the way. True. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and you probably all already follow Professor Emily Oster online or subscribe to her newsletters. But if you don't, now is the chance and, and opportunity to because you will learn how to be better decision makers, not to learn what to do. <laughs> exactly thank you, you thank you thanks bye thanks so much for listening to Looking Up for more optimistic content follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra for more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards head to thingsarelookingup.co if you like what you hear and you want to support the show please don't forget to rate, review and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.